Why does a sea lion's fur repel water? Why are some plants' leaves so shiny? And what does atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease have in common to these things? The answer is lipids. We could not function without these amazing molecules, but when they start to build up in our arteries, they can cause serious problems. Today, our patient is presenting with dyslipidemia, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the words and on call. Today's episode is titled, Staten Island, An Approach to Lipids. We will be focusing on the two main lipids circulating in the human body, cholesterol and triglycerides. The key thing to know for lipids are that they are hydrocarbon molecules and are hydrophobic. The hydrophobicity is important because to be transported in the blood, they need to be incorporated into hydrophilic carriers that can transport them to their target locations. These hydrophilic carriers are termed lipoproteins. Lipoproteins are composed of many compounds, but the most noteworthy are the apolipoproteins, of which there are many, and something you can look up in Appendix 1 on our website blog post if you are interested. The key point is that the lipoprotein density is altered depending on the number of these apolipoproteins in the structure. There are five major lipoproteins in blood and are classified in ascending order of density. Chylomicrons, very low-density lipoproteins, VLDL, intermediate-density lipoproteins, IDL, low-density lipoproteins, LDL, and high-density lipoproteins, HDL. Note that IDL is between very low and low not between low and high density. The process of lipid metabolism has two pathways, and we'll start with the exogenous pathway. This begins with the gastrointestinal breakdown and eventual intestinal absorption of dietary cholesterol and fatty acids. These are absorbed by intestinal cells and undergo enzymatic reactions to eventually form chylomicrons, which are the lowest density lipoprotein with only 1% of their total composition as apolipoproteins. Chylomicrons are transported by the lymphatic system and enter the blood via the thoracic duct and eventually reach the liver. Chylomicrons are broken down by lipoprotein lipase to make chylomicron remnants and free fatty acids that can be used as energy or stored in adipose tissue. These remnants are also converted into LDL particles. In the endogenous pathway, Cholesterol is synthesized from acetyl-CoA in the liver through a complex series of enzymatic reactions, which we will not review since our biochemistry days are behind us, but you can review in the appendix on our blog post at the internet work if you like. A key reaction is the rate-limiting step via the enzyme beta-hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA, HMG-CoA reductase. This is something we'll come back to when we discuss treatment, so stay tuned. Within the endogenous pathway, we also have generation of our lipoproteins. HDL and VLDL are synthesized in the liver. HDL proteins have greater than 50% of their mass from apolipoproteins, and most importantly, it has the enzyme lecithin cholesterol acyltransferase, LCAT. This enzyme converts cholesterol molecules on the surface of the lipoprotein into cholesterol esters, which migrate into the lipoprotein core. This decreases the cholesterol concentration in the outer layer, and the HDL particle can absorb cholesterol from the surrounding environment, from blood vessels for example. HDL can then transport this cholesterol to the liver, where it can be utilized for bile acid synthesis. Therefore, HDL is essential for reducing cardiovascular risk by decreasing atherosclerotic burden. VLDLs are also synthesized in the liver, but they transport triglycerides from the liver to the surrounding tissues. 
VLDL will be enzymatically cleaved as they gain apolipoproteins into LDL. LDLs have greater than 50% of their composition as cholesterol, with a modest amount of apolipoprotein, primarily the B100 subtype. Lower density lipoproteins are needed by tissues for a variety of processes, including hormone production and cell membrane synthesis. LDLs can also be enzymatically oxidized and enter macrophages. These accumulate cholesterol and are termed foam cells. These cells are significant contributors to the formation of atherosclerotic plaques. Understandably, the presence of this increased cholesterol from LDLs favors the development of atherosclerosis, which is why we consider LDL the bad cholesterol. In summary, we utilize both LDL and HDL for various processes, but when the level of cholesterol in blood gets high, the normal physiologic action of LDL becomes secondary to its contribution in forming atherosclerotic plaques. The first step in approaching dyslipidemia is understanding how to start screening. As our focus here is internal medicine, we won't go into extensive detail, but essentially everyone greater than 40 years of age or patients at any age with specific cardiovascular conditions, full details available on our associated blog posts, should start being screened every five years until age 75. And the good news for patients, the recommendation is to do these non-fasting. Blood work should include a lipid panel, which includes a total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and triglycerides. It is also beneficial to include ApoB and LPA, lipoprotein A, this is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, as it is an indicator of patients' genetic predisposed risk for developing atherosclerotic disease. Apolipoprotein B is a subtype that is unique because it is contained primarily within LDL, LPA, IDL, and VLDLs. So, higher serum concentrations of it reflect total number of these lower-density lipoproteins in the blood, i.e. the bad cholesterol. Patients should have their risk calculated for cardiovascular disease using a validated risk model. The modified Framingham Risk Score or the Cardiovascular Life Expectancy Model are two validated models. These tools stratify patients, which helps with determining initiation of treatment. Risk enhancers are also utilized, i.e. risk factors, listed on our blog post, Appendix 2, that increase a patient's risk for adverse cardiovascular outcomes regardless of their current 10-year risk score. Now that we understand the screening process, we now need to better define dyslipidemia. It refers to lipid values that are associated with disease or increased risk of disease, and for lipid-altering therapy would be a value. The cutoffs for dyslipidemia vary depending on a patient's 10-year cardiovascular risk, but generally, we are concerned with a total cholesterol of over 6.2 millimolars, LDL over 2.4 millimolars, triglycerides of over 2.25 millimolars, or non-HDL of over 4.2 millimolars. The 2021 Canadian Cardiovascular Society Dyslipidemia Guidelines recommend that any patient with an elevated triglyceride level of over 1.5 millimolars should primarily have their non-HDL and ApoB lipoprotein be used as a modality for lipid screening rather than LDL. The updated Canadian Cardiovascular Society Dyslipidemia Guidelines also discuss screening for women who have had a pregnancy complication such as hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, gestational diabetes, preterm birth, stillbirth, 
low birth weight infant, or placental abruption. The recommended screening protocol is a complete lipid panel in the late postpartum period. This is because these women have a higher risk of premature cardiovascular disease and stroke, with onset 10 to 15 years after delivery. Ultimately, these guidelines emphasize that higher cholesterol levels are associated with the development of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and having stringent cutoffs is necessary to prevent the progression and or development of these diseases. The clinical conditions of atherosclerotic origin that we worry about include myocardial infarction, coronary artery disease, stroke, dementia, chronic kidney disease, peripheral arterial disease, and abdominal aortic aneurysms. Although the initiation of therapy in patients with elevations in cholesterol is important, the end target is not as clear. To date, there are no RCTs that define the ideal target for LDL, non-HDL, or apolipoprotein B, but current recommendations are to target an LDL of less than 1.8 to minimize the progression of atherosclerotic burden. The priority should be to introduce non-pharmacological options to patients. Maintaining a healthy body weight with at least 150 minutes of exercise weekly, adherence to a Mediterranean diet, cessation of smoking and limiting alcohol consumption to no more than moderate is essential. These recommendations are often made in tandem with starting pharmacologic treatment. The updated CCS dyslipidemia guidelines emphasize that studies have consistently shown a 20 to 22% relative risk reduction in adverse cardiovascular outcomes for each one millimolar drop in LDL. Indication to start a statin therapy is any patient who is considered high risk from a risk stratification model, which is Framingham risk score of over 20%. Intermediate risk patients, Framingham risk score 10 to 19.9% if LDL is over 3.5 millimoles, or apple B lipoprotein is over 1.5 grams per liter, or non-HDL is over 4.2 millimoles. In the low-risk subjects, so Framingham risk score of less than 10%, health behavior modifications, as previously mentioned, are best recommended. But we would start satin therapy if their LDL is over 5 millimoles, or apobilipoprotein over 1.45 grams per liter, or non-HDL over 5.8 millimoles. Initiation of statin therapy is straightforward, but the key is to routinely address for response to statins. Statins are competitive inhibitors of that previously mentioned enzyme, HMG-CoA reductase. A reduction in intrahepatic cholesterol levels leads to an increase in LDL receptor turnover that results from an enhanced rate of hepatic LDL receptor cycling. In short, inhibiting HMG-CoA reductase will lower LDL, which reduces foam cells and minimizes vascular damage. These drugs are not without their side effects, however. Myalgias, muscle aches without an elevation of creatinine kinase, are common, but patients should not develop true myopathy. 30% of patients in clinical trials reported myalgias, but 30% in placebo groups also reported myalgias, so it is difficult to accurately indicate what a patient's risk is of developing this but discussing the possibility is important. We initially trialed patients on low doses of high-intensity statins, but often patients require full doses to achieve guideline-directed targets. If patients are started on treatment and do not see a decrease in their LDL to less than 1.8, but the patient is still within 20% of this target on max-dose statin, 
Then the next step would be to add ezetimib. Ezetimib is a medication that targets the protein NENM-PIK-CLLI-K1. This blocks cholesterol absorption in the small intestines. The liver then compensates for this by upregulating LDL receptors to increase absorption of LDL, and this decreases serum levels of LDL. The Improve It trial showed that Zetimib, compared to placebo, showed a modest reduction in cardiovascular events when used in conjunction with a full-dose statin in patients with recent acute coronary syndrome. If patients do not see a decrease in their LDL, ApoB lipoprotein, or non-HDL, another option, in addition or instead of azetamide, would be a pro-protein convertase subtilisin kexin type 9 PCSK9 inhibitor. This is typically recommended prior to azetamide if the patient is over 20% of their target LDLC goal, i.e. a value of over 2.4 on maximum statin. This monoclonal antibody binds to LDL receptors and pulls them off the hepatocyte membrane and recycles them. This recycling allows individual receptors to last longer and spend more time clearing out LDL from the circulation. However, these medications are expensive and unfortunately not normally covered unless there is familial hyperlipidemia. The updated CCS guidelines also do not recommend the use of over-the-counter omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acid supplements to reduce cardiovascular risk. They provide no significant cardiovascular benefit in randomized clinical trials. The Heart Protection Study enrolled over 20,000 UK adults with coronary disease, occlusive arterial disease, or diabetes, and allocated 40 milligrams of simvastatin versus placebo for five years. This intervention reduced all-cause mortality due to its significant reduction in coronary death rate. This study showed that adding a statin for patients that are considered high risk from comorbid conditions, irrespective of their initial cholesterol concentration, produces substantial long-term benefits. Thank you for listening to today's episode. This episode was written by Dr. Parm Kak, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Samir Hazra, cardiologist, and Dr. Stephen Montague, general internal medicine. The internet work was created by Alison Lai and co-developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. Music production by Laxman's Vanth Mohan. Please take a look at our associated infographic and blog post with all the associated details for this episode at theinternetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.